spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. We live in a world where it's filled with aphorisms and cliches. Most of you have heard the statement, Seeing is believing. But in the Bible and in the realm of faith, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. It is when you come to Christ that the door opens, that the light goes on. I don't know about you, but before I became a Christian, I had so many questions about God, about heaven, about hell, about right, about wrong, about good, about evil, and about the circumstances of life. And I remember a person saying, if you will receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you will accept him, if you will come to that place where you look at him and see him for who he is, most of your questions will be answered. And it is true. Humanity exists in a kind of a, of a spiritual darkness and blindness. We find it difficult to see beyond our physical circumstances in this world. How far can you see? Can you see into the future? Can you see even into your own future? Can you see God? Can you see the true meaning, the true significance, the true purpose of life? Can you grasp with perfect understanding or embrace what it means to have the assurance of eternal life? Or are you in the dark? Those who find themselves in physical darkness will often see a companion or a guide, if you have a hearing impairment or a vision impairment, it isn't unusual to get help to navigate through this difficult world. The Bible speaks of a spiritual world also where there are difficult and dangerous obstacles. That spiritual world, though invisible to the naked eye, is clearly real. We are in the dark. And in this passage, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Following Jesus and possessing the light of life gives believers the ability to negotiate the dark twists and turns on the path that is set before us. 
And so Jesus offers a series of claims to vindicate or justify his statements. The religious leaders are there immediately to contradict Christ's claim and then to present their own counterclaims. The statement of Jesus, according to them, is invalid, they say. Their criticism, well, you're your own witness and therefore your testimony is invalid or inadmissible. The religious leaders then spell out another counterclaim. Since Jesus can't produce the Father, the claim of Jesus must be ignored. And once again, Jesus will offer a series of proofs, convincing arguments to bring the contention to a proper conclusion. What are the proofs or what are the convincing arguments that Jesus offers? Well, first of all, that he knows where he came from and where he is going. He came from an invisible realm and he's going to return to that invisible realm. Jesus contrasts the religious leader's imperfect understanding with his own perfect understanding. Imperfect understanding disqualifies the religious leaders because they're not qualified to judge. And then Jesus makes an appeal to the testimony of the revelation of God their own law and the presence of the ministry of the Father in his ministries. Now, again, what this can basically boil down to is what invariably happens in each and every one of our our lives. And that is there are two testimonies that are offered. The first testimony that is offered is that Jesus is the light of the world. The second testimony that is offered is that's not true. Or what I would call the lies of the world. Hasn't that been your experience? That whenever the Bible has something remarkable to say, there's someone else who will say, that's not true. The Bible's not true. God isn't true. What Jesus said isn't true. Heaven isn't a real place. Hell isn't a real place. And your life is whatever you want to make of it. I read this week that there was a man named Frederick Nietzsche. He was... Really, the father of existentialism, he was also um, the son of a Lutheran pastor who died early in Nietzsche's life. That Nietzsche himself, Frederick Nietzsche, studied theology and then abandoned belief and faith in Jesus when he was convinced the historical evidence for the central teachings of Christianity were untrue. And then he began to postulate and think about the implications that there is no God and the consequences of God and the freedom that comes with not having the restraint of a God in your life. And he was heavily influenced by several people, including Adolf Hitler and and Joseph Stalin. By the way, Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood. Mao Zedong was raised under missionary teaching. Hugh Hefner was raised in a minister's home. Being exposed to Jesus doesn't mean that you walk in the light. We can be exposed by Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we flee from the darkness. And in this passage, Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
that humanity, all of humanity, is by nature dark and broken, and He is by nature light. Jesus is the light of the world, but He's more than that. In this passage, Jesus claims to be the light that guided the children of Israel in the wilderness, the Shekinah light in the temple, the light that was manifested in the deliverance of the children of Israel. And that we are delivered out of darkness by believing and following Jesus Christ. Look again in verse 12. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. By the way, this is the second in a series of I am statements that Jesus makes. Earlier, you'll remember in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Later, Jesus will say, I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, it was a brief digression. But now we return to the last day, the eighth day of the Feast of of Tabernacles or Booths. And, And you'll remember as we've been talking about the feast called Sukkot or Tabernacles or Booths, it was marked by two great ceremonies. At the beginning of the festival... The priests and the religious leaders would go to the Gihon Spring, the Pool of Siloam. They would fill pitchers with water and they would pour out the pitcher. And you'll remember it was at that point that Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. The second great celebration was called the illumination of the temple. And it was sort of like the Jewish version of the 4th of July. It was a spectacular event. Remember in verse 20, they are in the court of the women in the treasury. And in the court of the women, there were four pillars that were more than 30 feet high. And the young, strong priests would set a ladder against these four pillars. And at the top of the pillar was a candelabra. And in the base of the candelabra, there was a basin filled with about 65 liters of oil. And in that big bowl, there was a wick. And the young, strong priests would climb the ladder. The wick would be floating. They would take a torch and they would light it on fire. And it would be like an explosion of light. And the explosion of light would take place in one place, and then another place, and another place, and then finally the fourth place. And the whole temple would be filled with light. As a matter of fact, in the Mishnah, it's recorded, and I quote, Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises and countless Levites played on harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets and instruments of music. And the children of Israel over and over and over again would have heard that Israel is, was a light to the world, that Jerusalem was a light to the world, that Abraham and the prophets were lights to the world, that the law was a light to the world. The psalmist would say that the word of God was a lamp unto my feet. A guide, if you will. And the pillars in this courtyard would represent the Shekinah, or the Shekinah in the Hebrew. The Shekinah represented the glory or the physical presence of the true and the living God. This was the light that shone in the wilderness wanderings. This was the light, remember when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt and there was a pillar 
of light by night, and there was a luminescent cloud by day. And they would follow the light, and they would follow the cloud. As a matter of fact, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, the Shekinah, or the presence of the Lord, was there. And in the temple of Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the light showed up. The priests were overcome by the presence of God. And by the way, King Solomon crafted golden shields that he placed in the temple and later copper shields fabricated by King Rehoboam to replace the golden ones um, became a type and a symbol, if you will, of the departure of the Shekinah or the Shekinah. After the, right before the Babylonian captivity, the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord departed. And Jesus is saying that he's the Shekinah, the light. He's more than just the philosophical musings of a great teacher. Jesus is claiming to be the true light, the pillar, the cloud. Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is in effect saying, I am the cloud. I am the guide. I am the one who protected you so that you wouldn't stumble in the darkness. I am the one who invaded Solomon's temple and filled it with, with such a presence that they were overcome. And you've got to understand something, that even these gigantic lights, as impressive as they were, would eventually go out. You know what they were? They were a religious substitute for the real light. Human beings are hopelessly religious. We love religious things and we love religious symbols. But for some reason, we want the symbol more than we want the substance And Jesus is claiming not just simply to be a light, but the light, the light in every way. And if you find yourself in a position of deep darkness, that you're stumbling in the darkness, if if lately you prayed a prayer to the effect, Lord, I just want to see, Lord, I just want to see, I just want to see what's happening here, cry out to him. Jesus wants to. Be your guide. He wants to keep you from stumbling in the darkness. And again, if you look at verse 12, look what it says. I am the light. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Earlier in my radio program this week, a person called and and they asked kind of an odd question. They said, well, you know, what? I'm I'm trying to, to know God and I'm trying to relate to God and I'm trying to cultivate my friendship and my relationship with God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's a good question, isn't it? What does it mean to follow Jesus? In that particular passage, the word follows is a very specific word in the Greek language. It's akolet. That word follows is very interesting for so many reasons. One great scholar, William Barclay, does a great job of defining and and listing five closely connected meanings. The word following was used in the ancient world. Typically, number one, it was used to describe a soldier who followed his captain in battle. 
Now, even today, soldiers find themselves in foreign battlefields, in foreign terrains, with foreign customs, in foreign language, in foreign danger. And the diligent soldier's responsibility in the ancient world was to follow their commander. Jesus is our commanding officer. We follow Jesus the way a soldier follows his commander. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing to Timothy, he said to Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. He didn't say run away from hardship. He didn't say redefine hardship. He didn't say drink and drug until the pain goes away so that you won't have to deal with the hardship. No, he said endure hardship. The, the, The word also meant the relationship of a slave and his master. In other words, the slave followed his or her master. The slave makes himself or herself available to the master and is directed by the master. So the ancient people would describe the way that a slave followed his master was that specific word. And no wonder Paul would write, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. It was the same word, slave. And so, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to follow him the way a soldier follows his commander. It means the way that a a slave follows his master. But the word was also used to describe a counselor or trusted advisor or a mentor who offered precious advice and expertise. We follow the advice, hopefully, of our doctor or our lawyer. When you're paying the doctor $200 a visit, you Ignore him at your own risk. If you have an attorney, like I have an attorney who, he's a great attorney, but he's not a cheap attorney. When he opens his mouth, the meter starts running. On more than one occasion, my, my, my attorney has said to me, you would do well to follow my advice. You're paying me a lot of money to tell you this. And that's exactly the same thing. We as Christians follow the expert advice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he speaks, we should listen and follow his advice. And the word was also used in following the law or obeying the law in a particular city or state that you would visit. You followed the law and the Christian is a citizen of heaven and we accept the laws of the kingdom of God and that Jesus is our king. And it was also used in rhetoric or instruction to follow the line of teaching when a teacher would argue or reason a core issue or a difficult issue. The teacher would ask the student to follow his line of thinking and his line of reasoning. We follow Jesus. We listen to his message. We follow his line of reasoning. We allow him to lead. And so whatever else it means to follow Jesus, it must mean to follow him with your mind and to follow him with your body and to follow him with your soul and to follow him with your spirit and to follow him with your service and to follow him with your obedience. Now, read it again. I am the light of the world. He who 
follows me shall not walk in darkness. You know, one translation says, shall never walk in darkness. I like that. The children of Israel kept their eye on the cloud. When the burning pillar would move, they would move. When it got up, they got up. If it happened in the night, they left in the night. If it happened during the day, they left during the day. Jesus is making it abundantly clear. For you to not follow him is like living in a world of darkness. With It's like living in a, with a blindfold. And so the Lord Jesus promises that we will never walk in darkness, but we will have the light of light. And look what it says. Not simply know the light, not simply see the light, but that we ourselves would become possessors of the light. We receive Jesus, and when we receive Jesus, we walk in his light, but we also possess the light. We shine with Jesus and for Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You'll remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul speaks of a dark black cloud that descends on this planet. The world is dark. But in Philippians 2.15, we have the light of life. And on good occasions, your light leaks through. Every once in a while when you're following Jesus and you're obeying Jesus and you're submitted to Jesus and you have that sense of His presence and you are confident in His love and secure in His promises, people look at you and they go, well, you look different to me. There's something about you. There's some radiant, glorious peace and joy. That's who you are in Christ. So we walk. Now remember what it says here in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now think about that for just a moment. As shocking and embarrassing as Jesus' statement is to even some of you. Imagine how the religious leaders felt. What? What carpenter from Galilee? We've lit the torches and you are making this outrageous statement. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. They understand exactly what he's saying. He is claiming to be the very presence of God in their midst. It's hard for us to comprehend how Amazing that statement is. I've done this before. Can you imagine a former famous president going, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And you see, you laugh because of the absurdity of that kind of a statement. The religious leaders basically are saying this. The Greek verb to bear witness is a, is a familiar word. You know it. It's martreo. We get the word martyr from that. It means to testify. 
And the noun form is martreia, or testimony. So the literal translation of, of verse 13 reads something like this. You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The Pharisees immediately contradict the statement of Jesus. And by the way, whenever Jesus speaks, there's always someone there who will say, that's not true. I'm the person who will satisfy your thirst. Oh, that's not true. Jesus won't satisfy your thirst. You need more. I'm the light of the world. No, no, Jesus is a light among many lights. But in order to truly understand, you have to read my book. You have to go to my church. You have to do this. You have to do that. The enemies of Jesus respond to his great declaration of truth with a lie. And it's a technicality. Hey, look, whatever you're saying, it can't be true because, hey, guess what? The law or the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. The famous Bishop Augustine of Hippo once said, the very limit of human blindness is to glory in being blind. And they're rejoicing in their blindness, in their wickedness, in their emptiness. Jesus made a great claim, asserting a great fact about the true nature of reality. What the sun is to the earth, the source of physical light, Jesus is to the world, the source of spiritual light. It was a statement of fact by one who knew and understood the nature of ultimate spiritual reality by one who cannot lie. John Phillips writes, and I quote, the reality of light is affirmed by the fact that it shines. It needs no other witness. If a person denies that it shines, no more can be said. Jesus proclaimed a self-evident truth that he was the light of the world, was affirmed by his character and by his conduct and by his conversation, but they called him a liar. There remained no more to be said. The light shone. But they said it didn't. Unquote. Isn't that interesting? There are those who will tell you that Jesus didn't really mean what he said and he didn't really say what he meant. And it's interesting to me that Jesus in his patient, loving, compassionate way is still willing to reason with the religious leaders. You should thank God every day that I'm not God. Because I would have just said, you're toast. Burnt toast, as a matter of fact. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't wipe them out in the most loving and compassionate and sensitive way. He willingly calls them to the table to reason with them. Look at verse 14. He cites as a proof his origin and destiny. Jesus answers and says to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Understand this. Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus is basically saying to the religious leaders, I know that this is going to be impossible for you basically to understand or accept, but I came from heaven. 
the invisible, eternal world that exists, that I have created, I came from that world. From the invisible, eternal, glorious, majestic presence of God, I've come into this world. This is why in another place in John's Gospel, Jesus said, if you believe that the Father sent the Son, you have eternal life. And so Jesus takes two tracks of argument. One concerns personal testimony, and the other concerns the testimony of the law. And he's affirming that his character is his credential. The truth claim of Jesus is rooted and grounded in his knowledge of his divine origin and his divine destiny. Jesus is making the outrageous claim that he came out of eternity and into time. And soon he would leave time and he would exit and go back into eternity. Jesus had perfect knowledge of his eternal self-existence. By the way, there are truths that God can only affirm. There are truths that only God can affirm about himself. Jesus' argument is the religious leaders are ignorant of Jesus' true origin and of his true destiny. And if they were aware of his true origin and aware of his true destiny and aware of his relationship with the Father, then they would go, the presence of God, the very presence of God is in our midst. We have been having this religious festival. And all the while, the true and the living God is among us. And look what Jesus says in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Think about what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. You judge according to the flesh. Now remember the flesh in the New Testament broadly means everything that you are apart from Jesus. But here, in this specific instance, when Jesus is saying, you judge according to the flesh, in this circumstance, what he's saying is, you are judging in a temporal way, in a superficial way. You're judging according to external appearances. The religious leaders were unable to form any valid opinion because of their carnality. Remember what it says in John 3.3, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. How can they see? How can they see? How can an unregenerate, hard-hearted, wicked unbeliever understand and define the nature of Jesus and the person of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus? And so Jesus contrasts his spirit with their spirit. The religious leaders are ignorant of the facts. They're unable to comprehend with their mind, with their heart, what Jesus is saying. And when Jesus says, I judge no one, we have to understand the statement in the context in which it's being offered. Jesus judges no one at this point. Because at this point, he hasn't come to judge, but he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It can't mean that he never judges. Because there's ample evidence throughout the Old and the New Testament that all judgment is reserved for Jesus. 
Jesus, as a matter of fact, makes the astonishing statement that the Father judges, judges no one, but that He has appointed all judgment to be in the Son. We as Christians are told we're to judge between right and wrong. We're to judge between good and evil. We're to judge sinners in the midst of the church. And so, Jesus says that he's motivated by love. And he's motivated by compassion at this point. Now, by the way, because he's motivated by love and because he's motivated by compassion, does that mean that he won't be motivated by law and he won't be motivated by justice? No, he will. Law and justice will be satisfied. Love and compassion will be satisfied. Love, compassion, law, and justice all come together in this thing called the cross of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus. And look what it says in verse 16. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. Because he's incapable of doing that which is false. For I am not alone. He affirms that the Father is with him and that the Father has sent him. And look what it says in verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men are true. Jesus doesn't excuse or ignore the testimony of the law. By the way, when you read that passage, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Why did the law require the testimony of two or three witnesses? Because human beings are by nature flawed. Human beings are by nature wicked. We are filled with weakness. We are filled with failings. The law required the testimony of two witnesses who agreed in every point, in every detail, on the subject or the claim or the accusation at hand in order to have an adequate basis to judge any given circumstance. And because they had this incredible level that you had to rise to, a lot of guilty people went free. You'll remember that Jesus, even in his own trial, later on when he's brought before the Sanhedrin, they have to hire so many false witnesses until two can finally get their, their stories straight so that they can accuse him. Now think about it for just a moment. We see something. If two men testimony is a sufficient motive to establish a basis of truth, how is it possible that the testimony of two men provide fair witness, but the testimony of the Father and the Son does not provide fair witness? Look what it says in verse 19, or in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter will be established. And so we see something, we observe something. We can be clouded by malice or by anger or by bitterness or by selfishness. We might be motivated by fear or hatred or revenge or prejudice. We can make honest mistakes. Two independent witnesses are less likely to falsify information in a compelling way. 
And if the witness is false, if it's filled with mistakes and contradictions, they'll usually come to light upon cross-examination. But when Jesus, like I said, is later accused, they're not interested in the truth or in the testimony. They're interested in getting rid of him. And in verse 18, Jesus says, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. We as Christians believe that there's one God, one eternal, self-existent God. We believe that the Father is God. We believe that the Son is God. We believe that the Holy Spirit is God. We believe that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. That they're distinct in their identity. Yet united completely and perfectly in substance and in essence, there aren't three gods. There's only one God. And that one true God is distinctly the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a pernicious false teaching that says that the Father is a manifestation And the Son is a manifestation. And the Spirit is a manifestation. But that can't be true. Or else Jesus' argument is false and and actually deceptive. Jesus is asserting that his claim is true based on the testimony of two distinct persons. And if he is in fact the Father, and if he is in fact the Son, and if the Son is in fact the Father, and the Father is in fact the Son, then the logic of this passage makes no sense whatsoever. And so in verse 19, the religious leaders say, Where's your dad? Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Do you understand what's happening? The religious leaders are saying, show us your father. Show us God. We want to see God. Jesus answered, you neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Can you imagine the religious leaders? We know you. You're that carpenter from Galilee. You're this troublemaker who says these outrageous things. Too bad we're living 2,000 years in the past before they invent psychotropic drugs so we can medicate you, Jesus. Clearly, you have messianic delusions of grandeur. Do you understand what's happening? The religious leaders are rejecting Christ's claim. They're rejecting Christ's claim, and they don't believe it. And when they ask, where is your father? Show us your father. Jesus' response is, you don't know me. You see the physical and the outward and the circumstance, but you don't know me. Clearly, you don't understand where I came from and you don't understand where I'm going. You don't understand that I am who I say that I am. By the way, if you don't know a person, does that mean that that person doesn't exist? The very fact that they don't know the Father and they don't know the Son certainly doesn't mean that the Father and the Son don't exist. If the religious leaders had known Jesus, they would know the Father. Think for a moment. Jesus is speaking about his world, the world in which he came from, the world of the invisible, the supernatural, the world where the reality of God is unmistakable, where the Father is known. And everything around them spoke of the reality of a God who speaks to human beings. 
In verse 20, it says these words, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. The treasury, like I said, was in the court of the women. In the court of the women, there were seven massive trumpets that were used like agape boxes. In the first, it, it was really small at the top, and then it was very large at the bottom, and each male Jew would bring a half shekel, and he would put it in the first trumpet. Some would take, like the widow, who takes the two mites, and she puts it in one of the trumpets as an offering. Another would put offerings in the trumpet when sparrows had to be offered as sacrifice. There was another trumpet that was used in order to, for the care and the upkeep of the gold utensils in the tabernacle. And then, so there was a series of free will offerings. And you can imagine that this is the place where all of the traffic is taking place. And it's also the place called Gatsi in the Hebrew. It's the place where the Sanhedrin held their sessions. This is the place where the religious leaders hold their court. And I want you to think for just a moment. The religious leaders are at the very gate. They're at the portal between heaven and her earth. They're at the temple and the lights have been lit. And from the court of the women, you can see the court of the Gentiles and you can see the court of the men and you can see the court of the priests. And as the as the light is lit, they can see the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies and the golden ornaments that are contained therein. The light shone on all of the Religious representations that were taking place in the temple. You know what else? The religious leaders are thinking, you're in our territory now. Jesus, you're on our turf. This is our turf. You know what's ironic? It's Jesus' turf. It's his temple. And everything in it represents him. They could hate him. They could plan his death. They could feel the bitter burning well up inside of their hearts. They could send the police to arrest him, but it wasn't his time. And no power and no power on heaven or on earth could touch him until the father desired for that time to come to pass. And the religious leaders walked in darkness. And they continued to walk in darkness because they rejected the light. A person once stood on a soapbox at Hyde Park Corner pouring scorn on Christianity. The guy stood up and said, people tell me that God exists, but I can't see him. People tell me there's life after death, but I can't see it. People tell me there's a judgment to come, but I can't see it. People tell me that there's a heaven and a hell, but I can't see them. And he won a small smattering of cheap, polite applause, and he climbed down from his pulpit, and another struggled onto the soapbox. And a man said, people tell me there's green grass all around, but I can't see it. People tell me there's a blue sky above, but I can't see it. People tell me that there are trees nearby, but I can't see them. You see, I'm blind. That's the irony, isn't it? That a blind person 
can know the reality of the physical world based on the evidence. But the very fact, the very fact, the very fact that a person says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in judgment. It's proof positive that they're blind. One day I was at a restaurant. And I was at the counter and there was a man about two seats down from me. And he said, hey, could you pass the salt? And I said, what are you, blind? It's right in front of you. He goes, yeah, I am blind. You know, when your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your neighbor says, I don't see it. I don't see it. Your job isn't to make fun of blind people. It's to give them the light. It's to be the light to them. God has given us His Son, Jesus, to be our guide, uh, that which we can follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves in a place of honoring and obeying you. That, Lord, as we follow you, as we as we follow you like soldiers follow their commander, as we follow you like like a slave follows the master, Lord, as we follow you like the student follows the teacher. Lord, we pray that we would turn from wickedness and the evil deeds of darkness that we would take not just for granted but we would take serious the claims in the New Testament that we're to turn from darkness to the light and that we're to walk in that light Lord the Bible says that we're children of the light and we're children of the day and that we don't have to stumble in the dark. And that even as the light around us grows dimmer and dimmer and there's darkness everywhere, that, Lord, you've given us a light. Lord, we know that for most people, seeing is believing. But, Lord, we know that believing, trusting, Jesus, is the mechanism where we, whereby we can flick on the light and see everything else clearly. And so, Lord, again, for that person who finds themselves in a dark place, in a desperate place, in an empty place, Lord, I pray that they would come and see Jesus. That they would see Him for who He really is. Light, love, Master, Lord. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin and they would fully and finally and forever follow Him in a relationship of love. In Jesus' name, Amen.